Welcome to Have You Seen? And yes, my co-defendants, that was an ellipsis. Uh, I refer to you as co-defendants because this week, uh, my guests and I are talking about the trial of the Chicago 7. It's a first for this podcast. We're doing a current release. We're going to talk about its Oscar chances. We're going to talk about our overall impressions of it. Uh, and that guest for this week is Alex Nelson. Hello, it's me, Alex Nelson. Uh, happy <laughs> to be here. Happy to be back. Um, for doing another episode. Yeah, our our first returning guest as well. Hopefully, the first or the second of many. Um, yeah, uh, no real news to cover this week. Um, it's Leonardo DiCaprio's birthday. Big big ups to Leo on uh, being born forty six years ago today. Yeah, great accomplishment. Uh, yeah, he did it, man. He he's still here. But like I said, we are talking about the trial of the Chicago Seven. Uh, it's one of Netflix's uh best oscar hopes for this season although they have many um it's got a stacked cast it includes academy award winner mark rylance academy award nominees frank langella and michael keaton um golden globe nominees joseph gordon levitt and uh jeremy strong golden globe winner sasha baron cohen uh it, the list goes on and on and on um what, Alex, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the trial of the Chicago 7 is about? Uh, sure. So the, the trial of the Chicago 7 um, just kind of recaps the, the trial, of course, of seven members who were involved in a protest in 1968 outside of the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. Um, so these kind of seven people helped organize the, the protests, which then led to riots, and they were uh, summoned um, a few months later, actually, um, to go to trial about it, um, to be accused of kind of conspiracy and intentionally starting a riot to kind of cause harm with the police. Exactly. And of course, a lot of drama ensues. Um, I guess let's start with just kind of the pacing and the plot of this movie. It does a, an interesting thing where it has all of these people getting ready for uh, the protest. It has several different factions led by these major characters. And then it goes into, um, you know, kind of some background as well. Like there's some really affecting scenes of people getting their draft letters and doing the draft numbers. And I mean, that's something we obviously didn't live through, but hearing those stories from my parents and people of my parents' generation, I mean, there's nothing scarier than, than being told that you're going off to Vietnam to most likely die. I mean, I can't imagine how terrifying that was. And there's a really affecting shot early in the movie of um, this uh, young African-American man who's, it slowly pans over his bike, which is on the ground and a bunch of scattered mail. And then he's just crumpled on the ground reading this letter. And I don't know, I, I thought that this movie started very strong. Um, and yeah, then I also, it, yeah, go ahead. I, mean, I also think that that kind of sequence you're talking about where it talks about all the people getting their draft letters and kind of puts you in the setting of 1968 does a pretty good job and it also kind of sets up like what's going on politically pretty well mm -hmm. uh because you know i didn't like research anything before watching this movie and i certainly needed a refresher on the events of 1968 and you know who was at the convention who was up for re-election and stuff so I actually kind of enjoyed that and was like, okay, I feel like kind of caught up and ready for, you know, to, to see what the uh, move takes place next. Yeah, I, I think that 
the movie did a remarkable job of putting you in the situation of a bystander in 1968 and why these people are as angry as they were to protest with the fervor that they did. Um, and then also it makes you a very involved spectator of this trial. Uh, so it opens with this, uh, you know, montage of kind of late 1960s stuff and situates why people would be going to Chicago to protest the Democratic National Convention in 1968. And then um, cuts immediately to Joseph Gordon-Levitt as this uh, up and coming uh, sort of U.S. attorney guy who's going to be prosecuting this case. And we haven't seen the protest. We haven't seen what what has happened. And I think one of the uh, choices I really liked with this movie is the way that it slowly parcels out that information and shows you um, sort of what has happened. As the trial is happening, you are learning more about why they're on trial, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I don't know. How did you find the pacing of it? Um, so I agreed with that kind of device they did early. Um, they talked about where they, they showed all the setup for the trial, or not for the trial, they showed all the setup for the protest and then skipped past it right before it's about to start. Um, I liked that a lot um, because, you know, it is in the, the movie is in the, about the trial and you're going to learn all those tidbits later on. So I, I enjoyed that. And I thought they did a good job of piecing out those information. But I also have kind of another complaint about some of the ways that they did piece that information out because they added another layer to that, right? So we have the uh, protest that happened and then we have the trial where we're learning about the protest. And then we also had another layer where one of the characters played by Sasha Barrett Cohen, he does a lot of talks at like mm. uh, like bars and like, I guess at like colleges to like get people to understand his, you know, his views and stuff to get the word out. And so like a lot of the exposition is then given by him at those talks, which that really threw me for a loop, I have to say, as far as like the pacing and what was going on, because it was almost kind of like an inception thing where I was two layers removed from the, the protest now. Yeah, it would almost be like the equivalent of watching someone watch TV in this universe. Like it was a weird extra layer of distance. I agree. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's yep. actually just scenes where his character is saying what someone testified during the trial about what happened at the protest. And I was yeah. like, okay, this has got to, I, I, we need to like condense this a bit. Yeah, and it's interesting because as you know, I am not a fan of flashbacks. I've mentioned that on this podcast before, but I think that the flashbacks to the actual protest are really well done. It's the stuff that goes to Sasha Baron Cohen. It's almost a flash forward, right? Because he's recounting, like you said, the events of the trial. And, yeah, I mean, yeah. my impression was also that that could have been happening during it. Yeah. Like, because the trial goes on for months, right? So, like, right. that was, like, you know, at the evening, evenings, he would go tell people about what happened at the trial that day, but it still just felt really, like, I, that was the thing. I didn't know when it was happening. It was really kind of just an extra confusion. There. Yeah, and it it wasn't particularly effective because he already gets so much more than basically anyone else in the movie to really show off. And I would have rather that been a more interesting, vulnerable scene of his character, like, you know, waiting 
for a verdict or something or uh, more context of him during the protest itself than these kind of stand-up routine things. Yeah, because we don't get that many moments of him just being himself yeah. outside of a, a stage or an audience. I mean, that was his character's whole thing is like he would play up to the crowd. So he even does that during all of the trial scenes. He's playing to the audience at the trial. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's few moments um, where he's actually just talking with um, like some of just the conversations he had with like Eddie Redmayne's character towards the end of the film were, were really good. And I would have preferred more of those instead of hearing him just kind of monologue to if empty crowd yeah like monolithic it's it's just like yeah. faceless like dark room like you don't even see who's out there or who he's talking to yeah and it's um when a character is that performative what is interesting about performative characters is seeing what they're like when the lights are off and we literally get maybe two scenes of him with the lights off as it were um yeah and it would be if he's going to be kind of the He's not the audience surrogate at all, but he is the most engaging person for the audience. And if he's going to be that vehicle to get us connected and invested, it would be interesting to have more scenes of him interacting with the people one-on-one. Like, there's so many great characters in this movie that seem like they were uh, great people in history as well. And, like, I would love to have known more about them. And it really ends up relying on incredibly heavy lifting from just a whole slate of remarkable character actors like uh we'll get into this more but uh john carroll lynch as david dellinger may be my favorite performance in this movie because he gets so little and he does so much with it and that's kind of a classic like argument of a great performance or whatever but like man that there's a moment when he is um he's basically had enough of this absolutely we we should mention they have an insane judge like he he literally does seem demented at many points yeah almost Certainly like past his prime a little <laughs> bit like a serial cartoon villain like oh yeah definitely just kind of unreasonably stretches your like yeah willingness to believe that that can even be a real judge but and we'll we'll bookmark that because i do want to talk about that performance because it is mm-hmm. one of the ones with the most screen time but uh there's this moment when John Carroll Lynch's character has just had enough and he snaps and uh, he's like the ultimate pacifist guy. And, uh, you know, he's saying, you know, he's yelling at the judge and then he's saying, you don't have to grab my arm to the bailiff yelling at the judge, don't have to grab my arm and then accidentally hits one of the people. And just the way that he says, I didn't mean to hit you. I'm so sorry. It was like one of the most affecting moments in the entire movie to me. And this movie is filled with, great performances and great actors doing great little turns like that that um i don't know it that's one of the things that like i i really came away thinking like man they really cast this movie very very well yeah i i agree with that that was one of like as you said one of the best scenes of the film one thing that kind of disappointed me about that is because that character did get so little time yeah uh you mentioned how he's like a big pacifist like that was you know david dillinger's thing he gets so little time in this movie, you almost kind of forget that aspect of him when this scene happens. So I didn't even like put that together until later. I was like, oh, actually that was even bigger for this character because, you know, he has devoted so much to being like pacifist and, and avoiding right. violence as much as possible. So that, um, it's just kind of like a little bit of an imbalance between the characters as we talked about with 
like Sasha Baron Cohen's character, of course. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about there are three characters that I think get the most time, and that's uh, Sasha Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman, Mark Rylance as William Kunstler, and uh, Frank Langella as uh, Judge. I can't remember his first name, but his last name is also Hoffman, and there's much comedy made of that. Um, and I guess let's dive into those three performances because they are going to be the ones that I think people come away talking about, thinking about the most. So before we'll... we oh, before we do that, can I actually ask um, just why do you not include Eddie Redmayne as Tom Hayden on that list? You know, I think I may know question. the answer, but I... it's a great question. It's I think it's because the character is so flat, like he's so. Uh, he's simultaneously yeah. watered down from the real Tom Hayden to be the audience surrogate, but then also because Sasha Baron Cohen is given more screen time, he's not interesting enough to really be an audience surrogate. So he kind of like, even though he does have a decent amount of screen time, he kind of fades into the background for me. And I do think it's a good performance. There's a bit of that British actor doing an American actor thing. And then there's also the thing that Eddie Redmayne kind of... I. I am a big Eddie Redmayne fan, as you know. We've talked about that literally this week. Um, but uh, I, he he leans on this thing he does where he kind of will slump over and talk out of the side of his mouth to be very like, I'm awkward, I'm weird. And uh, that's not my understanding of who Tom Hayden was. He was a real like leader of men type and he was a six-term um, uh, state representative for California like he was a politician as well as a protester and I I think that the screenplay really falls short we should say the screenplay and then the direction of this movie are both done by Aaron Sorkin um this is Aaron Sorkin's second directorial uh effort his first was Molly's Game which is an absolute masterpiece of a movie and he wrote and directed that and I was a little I guess I had that same expectation coming into this. And even though I liked this movie overall, it did not hit that level of like, holy crap, this guy can, he can shoot a movie as well as write one. But yeah, um, Eddie Redmayne as Tom Hayden, it just kind of wasn't there for me. What about you? Yeah, no, I agree with most of what you said there. I think it was, uh, I don't have a problem with his performance too much. Um, and I didn't really have context for the character itself, but mm -hmm. You kind of find out like he is he does become like the closest thing to a, a lead protagonist of this film and that's almost kind of surprising because he doesn't he just hasn't given much up until you know the very end of the movie yeah uh, he spends a lot of time just kind of following mark rylance around like he's he's in, he's got screen time but he's really just in the background of mark rylance's scenes for a lot of it yeah, it's if I were to pick a lead, I would end up picking Mark Rylance over um, Eddie Redmayne, I think, just because of the his character is more demonstrative and is in focus, you know, most of the scenes that he is in. And that's, of course, because he's their lead counsel. So he's interacting. And I mean, I am such a sucker for a good judge versus lawyer versus witness courtroom scene. And this movie does a lot of those very well. And Mark Rylance just like he does. It's scenery chewing in the level of how good I thought it was, but it's not like over the top. It doesn't take you out of it or anything. It's just really, really good. And I just mm -hmm. was very enthralled by it. Yeah, I agree. I think he is a lead, the lead as far as like, he steals the show a little yeah, bit. Yeah, of magnetism uh, for sure. 
but I just was saying like Eddie Redmayne's character is almost like objectively, you know, the lead of the story that they wrote. Yeah. So no, it's kind of interesting right. that right. it's interesting that he's not, you know, what we immediately think of like, oh yeah, he's the lead of this movie. It's like, oh yeah. Yeah. So if we, that. if we make a pyramid of these characters, you're, you're right. I think we would put uh, Eddie Redmayne as Tom Hayden at the top. And then the next layer would have three bricks. That would be Mark Rylance, Frank Langella, Sasha Baron Cohen. And then we would continue to expand outward because for the most part beyond that, everyone else just gets one scene. Yeah. Cause then you would add uh, Jared Rubin's character and yeah. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Schultz mm-hmm. is kind of like the secondary characters there. So uh, you mentioned that the judge, uh, Judge Hoffman, played by Frank Langella, comes off as a as a cartoon villain, and I don't think you're wrong at all. Uh, talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so the, the judge they bring into this trial is, I don't even know the best way to describe him because he just kind of has, you know, he's got that judge thing of like, this is my courtroom. You, you got to do things my way, but his way doesn't always even seem to make sense. It just seems to be like, everyone annoys me and I'm going to do what I want type thing. And like, he's not really on either side either. Like they, they kind of want you to think he's like working or he's trying to help the the federal government, like yeah. um, Joseph or Levitt's character. Like, and I guess, the event of that of the things he does does help the the federal government side more, the prosecuting side more. But he's also just kind of doing things because he I, I I can't even figure out his motives. He just is causing mayhem almost. Yeah, he isn't it is. leaving anything anyone says. He isn't um, you know taking anything into consideration. He's just kind of it's his courtroom. He's going to do what he wants. Yeah, it uh, it is almost antagonism for antagonism's sake. Like that's yeah. that's what it feels like at times. But I think, uh, I think that Frank Langella for me sold it at least to the sense of it made sense in the um, in the framework of the movie, right? In the universe they've created, I believed that this character could exist, um, because I liked that he was this mix of like. I've been on the bench for too long. I'm past my prime mentally. And then I'm also a bit sycophantic towards the Nixon administration. And then I'm also just an old guard guy. And there's all these counterculture dudes. I mean, Mark Rylance's character is older, but he has long hair and he's, you know, representing uh, yippies and hippies and all this stuff. Um, and it's it's very clear that he's a person who is very much not a part of the 1968 times. And so I, I like this idea of him as almost like this animated relic that is just fighting the 60s with everything that he has. Uh, the problem, of course, with that is, is that it just it doesn't always end up feeling realistic. Yeah, and maybe part of that is kind of exaggerated even further because Joseph Gordon-Levitt, as the federal prosecutor, is also a little more... Uh, He's, I mean, he's definitely not like the, the counterculture hippie people, but he, he is kind of, he does make him break himself apart from the old guard um, of his peers, of the other federal um, officers and, uh, you know, and the judge. So like, yeah, that kind of exacerbated how crazy the 
judge seemed as how Frank Magella seemed because he was so crazy compared to both the, the defending side and the prosecuting side. Yeah, and there's a there's a moment in the movie that we should talk about that will then lead us to talking about another one of the standout performances uh, that I think intersects all of these things really interestingly, and that's um, so the character of Bobby Seal. He's actually the eighth person within the Chicago Seven. He was indicted purely vindictively because he was a Black Panther who was in Chicago on the day. He was not present at any of the protests. He repeatedly says, I was only there for four hours. I was only there for four hours. And he's played, I think, really well by Yahya Abdul-Mateen II from, um, uh, we actually, in our last episode together, talked about his performance in Watchmen as Dr. Manhattan. But um, he, uh, there's a scene where after repeated protests because his lawyer has undergone emergency surgery and he is therefore without counsel and the judge keeps ignoring this, um, he is held in contempt and then he's literally bound and gagged. And I mean, it's a horrifying scene. It's really effectively done. I think it's one of the most affecting ones in the movie. And it, 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 it does, it's like a moment when even the judge recognizes that he's gone too far and uh, it's, it's a pretty, I don't know, it's a pretty powerful one. Um, but it it kind of threads that needle we were just talking about of Joseph Gordon-Levitt is supposed to be the Tom Hayden on the uh, the establishment side of things. And he's kind of the, oh, I'm you know prosecuting this case, but I don't necessarily know that I want to, and I need to be sympathetic so that we don't just have monsters on both sides, or we don't have caricatures, that's a better word, caricatures on both sides. And yeah, I... Uh, I, that moment really puts him and the judge and Bobby Seal together in a very interesting way. Yeah, I like well, to say I liked um, Mateen's character in this a lot more than his Watchmen role. <laughs> um, and yeah, he was he was great. I mean, that was a great performance. I think. I mean, you mentioned the big scene, but I also liked. There's a scene with him um, and Mark Rylance and, and then Eddie Redmayne again, it's just also in the background there. Um, they have a conversation in um, at the prison that he's being detained in mm-hmm. um, where they give him some news about one of his friends being shot. And, you know, he gives a, a short kind of, um, not like a speech, but he gives a short remark towards Eddie Redmayne's character about the importance of the trial and how it kind of compares to what he is fighting for and the differences there. And I think that was one of my favorite parts. Yeah, um, of it's, the movie. it's a great scene. And it's it's also a really interesting um, acknowledgement of Aaron Sorkin as writer-director kind of checking his privilege and acknowledging that there's a whole additional, much more horrifying than we as white privileged Americans and these characters as white privileged Americans could ever imagine um a whole other layer going on uh that is you know police brutality against uh, african americans and i mean it's it's i think that he and mark rylance are probably my favorite performances in the movie um, yeah. i think that they both just knocked it out of the park and i i really that scene in the uh in the prison where he talks about uh fred being killed is just really really powerful and so i want to ask you a bit this when we talk about the the structure and the pacing of the movie as a whole, because um, that character of Bobby Seal is only in like the first half to first two thirds of the movie, and then yeah, he's not he's not at the end of the movie. So 
and then with the kind of added context of he is the character who's there fighting about race and it's a separate issue from what the other seven are there for do you kind of feel like after uh his character like leaves the movie do you feel like there was a different shift in tone and it kind of because for me i feel like i lost a lot of the the weight and the important moments of this movie and then it was a little lacking after that it's a really interesting question um I mean, it definitely loses some energy because it starts to rely more on you're getting more and more of the actual protests at the towards the end of the movie. And there's uh, we should talk about the if we had to pick this movie would have two climaxes, I would argue. One is the climax in Bobby Seale's story when, as I just mentioned, he was bound and gagged and how horrifying it was. And then um, there's a resolution to his whole arc that happened shortly after. And then there's this this moment that kind of unifies all of the Chicago seven. And it's a, uh, it's sort of like a, an understanding moment between Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman, who were very much placed on opposite poles from each other as part of the same movement, but very different people with very different styles. And they have this supposedly very cathartic moment of, uh, oh, you said this, but you actually meant to say this. And, oh, I've actually read everything you've ever written. I actually respect the heck out of you. And it really doesn't work. And I think that you're right that letting um, Bobby Seal leave the story kind of does suck a bit of the air out of the room for the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so do you want to talk about that kind of second climax then? Yeah, I mean, it's just very... It was one of the only things that um that came off as cheesy in this movie for me. And it was like, so the idea is that there's a tape of Tom saying, uh, if blood is going to run, let it run all over Chicago. And what he meant to say was, if our blood is going to run, let it run all over Chicago. And that's all um, well and good, but it just there's so much wrapped up in it of like Sasha Baron Cohen being like oh he always says this he writes like that and in the Port Huron statement and I read it and it was great and he's like oh I think you're great too man and it just really it it rang pretty hollow for me I don't know did it did it land for you I think that scene did actually kind of land for me and I thought that moment was was all right and I think there was because they they weren't like super at odds to me I think they just kind of like it was mostly like Eddie Redmayne like Tom Hayden would just get annoyed with uh Abby Hoffman a lot like he was just like he did all these ridiculous things he wasn't taking it seriously a lot so I thought that did kind of work and it wasn't too I mean yeah it was like a very I somewhat cliche like oh I respect you too like there was that element too but I, I did think that landed what didn't really land for me is that the reason that that scene comes about is that they're deciding which of the two of them uh, for their um, for their lawyer for Mark mm, Randlands to right. yep. to have testified to put on the stand like that is the thing and Eddie Redmayne saying uh, no I can do it I can do it so then they you know go through that whole thing and realize okay maybe Abby Hoffman Sasha Baron Cohen is the better character to put up there. Um, and then what happens after that, when we put Sasha Baron on the stand is what I have an issue with. Okay. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's totally fair. And I think that uh, we definitely, in the last third of this movie, had a lot of what I would call Sorkin, you know, West Wing moments. Like, uh, the film literally ends with a dramatic reading of, of names of um, Vietnam dead, which could have been a powerful scene in the sense of that's a very powerful subject, but really just kind of came off as like, oh, how heroic these men are and... I don't know. I have a I, lot of thoughts about this scene. Yeah, we should we should definitely talk about it. Let's um let's circle back to the ending. Okay. We'll have that towards the end. Um but what I don't know. I guess I want to hear more about about what you felt did not work about Sasha Baron Cohen uh being the one to testify. Uh, so it's really just the way that they shoot that and added that scene together in the way in specifically, um, because he does, you know, say, um, you know, I think that the start of the testimony is pretty good and he, he you know, does a lot, but then uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character asks him very specifically, he says, you know, did you come to Chicago hoping that there would be a riot, that there would be conflict with the police? So like, that's the question he's trying to get answered and you can tell Sasha Barakotin starts to kind of delay that. You can tell he's really thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And then it fades to black. And it's a very slow fade to black. And I was confused as all hell <laughs> about what that was supposed to imply. Because I think that was a very important question. Yeah. I mean, like that could really, that question probably, and it probably did decide the the verdict of the, the trial, what the jury was going to think of them. And I guess we're meant to kind of assume what he said, but I think that not being able to see him say it is a very, I feel like we got robbed of something, a good, a good moment for that character. Yeah, this uh, is a, this is a PSA moment for um the have you seen podcast directors don't ever use fades unless it's star wars there's like no justification for doing this or space slow fade to black and it's so slow it's yeah, like it was impossible really... to not like it's so slow that you you stop thinking of like this is a transition and you're like this is a really long transition why specifically am i watching this transition like why why did they choose this fade to black yeah. i have this i have that much time to think about that during the the transition, which really um, I did not like, and then um, and then right after that, it, we jump forward a couple months and we get to the end of the trial. Mm-hmm. Um, and this ending scene is just uh, to me it was just like an editing mess, just a real <laughs> mess, because um, they want it to be this big heroic moment where. Um, Tom Hayden reads the list of uh, people who had died during the Vietnam War during that trial, which is, I think, pretty impactful. But um, as soon as he starts reading that list, because he kind of, the Frank Langella, as the judge, tells him, like, hey, you need to be brief, respectful, and, and don't like cause a fuss, and then I'll be nice to you. You know, I'll give you yeah. a good sentence if you do that. So he's still just trying to like bribe him. He's like, hey, don't cause any trouble. Let's just get this over with. And then you can tell Eddie Redmayne does a pretty good job here of like being like, no, it's, you know, 
there's something else that's going to happen. But he starts reading those names. And as soon as he says the first word of that, this big heroic music comes on yep. underneath it. And it's so loud and just starts immediately. And we needed a second to work up to that, I think. Mm-hmm. And then to make it even worse, we go into, we, we pan out of that moment with everyone cheering and clapping, of course. Um, we pan out and then it does a freeze frame. Oh yeah. I'm like, okay, it's a, it's a, your standard kind of his, uh, historical movie like that's showing real events. So it's got to have the plain text that tells what each person's really up to in real life. Um, I have some minor gripes about like what specifically was included in those texts. Yeah, it was very, it's, I don't want to spoil because, them, but they're very odd title cards. Like yeah, they are very odd. It, it's all over the place. Cause some of them are like actually really, um, you're like, oh, nice. That's a good outcome. And then others are like, oh, that's actually kind of depressing. Um, yeah. And then there's so like four really people just, they just don't include. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's just a real roller coaster of reading those texts. <laughs> a roller coaster of emotions for sure. He, yeah. And then, and then my, just to, to top it off, the cherry on top of this, just like really uncomfortable, overly cliche inspiring scene is that there's that freeze frame. And then they unfreeze it. Yep. They unfreeze it. And then you hear Eddie Redmayne read one more name off. And then it, and then the movie ends. And I don't, as far as I know, that one name he read isn't like a significant person. They just, they just unfroze it, let him go for one more second and then cut to black. And that's just the weirdest editing choice I've seen in a long time. Yeah. It's, um, it was not great. The ending was not great. I will fully agree and it reminded me so vividly of as you remember i was a big fan of the steven spielberg film lincoln until the very end when there's that weird moment where it's like there's a candle above his head and the camera zooms in on the candle and then the candle turns into the candle flame turns into uh lincoln delivering the gettysburg address or the his inaugural address it's one of the two anyway and i was just like I am so livid that a movie that I have enjoyed up to this point, really immensely in that case, has completely undone all of the goodwill that it amassed with me in one thing. And yeah. I thought the same thing here of like, come on, you're better than this. You made Molly's game. Like you you should you're capable of more than this. It uh yeah. it really threw me. The the other thing that I that I want to talk about in in the in the vein of kind of like these big moments that I don't know, I think that this is a big cheesy Hollywood moment that actually did land is the Michael Keaton stuff. So Michael Keaton in this movie is this really bizarre. He's a MacGuffin that kind of goes nowhere, but is still a really impactful thing to me. And that could be because I'm super biased and a huge fan of Michael Keaton. There's a lot of that going on in this movie. Just a lot of people I really like. Mm -hmm. Um, But so Michael Keaton, yeah, it is a great cast stacked, stacked to the ceiling. Um, so Michael Keaton in this movie is playing a former, the former attorney general, and they basically, through a lot of maneuvering, put him on the stand and get him to say that the previous administration found that it was basically completely the police's fault that there was a riot, and that the uh, the Chicago 7 had nothing to do with it, and they denied pr- to the chance to prosecute them. But uh, of course, it's it's ruled inadmissible and a very dramatic thing. But 
I don't know. That was kind of like the same energy, the same DNA as that big swelling music moment of like, this is the this is the moment where they've gone through the documents and they found the thing that they need in every legal movie and uh, and they've made it work. And I liked that they pulled the rug out from under you and it didn't work, but it did completely justify our faith in and admiration of these characters up to this point and allowed us to kind of this is kind of like because this also happens i believe after the bobby seal stuff has ended yes yeah a while after that and um i like that it lets us really just sit with the characters for the rest of the movie and know okay these guys were in the right i don't have to worry about that anymore um i can just kind of enjoy them as people and I don't know, I think that with a lesser actor, this could have come off as like really campy, but I think Michael Keaton absolutely nails it. I don't know, did, did it work for you? Yeah, I mean, I loved Michael Keaton in this. He's he's very casual about the whole thing, mm-hmm. um, which, I mean, I think, you know, hit at the point when they bring Michael Keaton's character in is when they kind of realize that the whole reason that any of them are in trial to begin with is because the guy that replaced um, Michael Keaton as the attorney general just really didn't like Michael Keaton yeah yeah and like wanted to kind of stick it to him so like that is kind of like oh that's why all of this is kind of happening so um yeah i think he, the fact that he is so kind of like casual about it and um you know when michael keaton says things he says them with a lot of like weight to it yeah just absolutely. the way his voice is and i think it worked really well i agree yeah it's this perfect mix of casual but also ooey gooey gravitas like he is chewing every word and it's so good um yeah i i love that and it of course gets this incredible stuff out of mark rylance and frank langella too because of course the judge disallows the entire testimony and it gives mark rylance a great chance to do some power yelling and um he really takes the opportunity and runs with it and yeah it's um yeah, let's let's zoom out a little bit and talk about our impressions overall. Um, what do you think? You've mentioned the editing at the end, and I think that there's there's a lot of safe editing in this movie. There's a lot of interesting editing in this movie. And there's a lot of bad editing in this movie. Like I really thought that the editing of interspersing the flashbacks to the actual footage of the demonstrations in with the reenactment of the demonstrations was really powerful and they synced it up really really well and it's almost bizarre to me that that those parts of this movie exist in the same movie that had the ending we just talked about but you are uh someone i consider an editing guru so i want to hear what you what you think about the overall editing of this movie i think you you really just kind of summed up my thoughts on it there though is that there are so many great parts of this and so many more of the safer things that they did that just work really well um all of the um kind of like trial scenes the back and forth between the lawyers are really sharp and like yeah i I loved um and then uh and then yeah as you said they mixed in a lot of like historical footage in as well which i thought for the most part worked really well but then they would make these kind of weird choices, especially towards the end. And they would also like, um, just kind of cut to things back and forth. And maybe this again is back to when I talked about the 
chats that Sasha Baron Cohen's character has where you're cutting to him talking also mm -hmm. is like we were having too many sometimes the good trial protest trial protest would get interrupted with a trial protest Sasha Varigo and talking in a coffee <laughs> shop and then go back and so there are some of those things that and I guess that's more of just like the overall pacing of it was a little bumpy at points um yeah I would agree with that I think it's about 15 minutes too long um but I don't know at the same time I don't know what I would take out maybe it's 15 minutes too short and it just needed a bit more heft well, I mean, there's things that you can either you can either take out or add more to, and specifically a lot of them secondary characters. Um, I think um, Jerry Rubin, the character of Jerry Rubin, who is played by Jeremy Strong, is the most offensive for this because yeah. he gets a weird amount of screen time to me, where he's not the uh, they kind of put. Sasha Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman is the more leaderly of the Yippie faction. Like they all kind of came in from their own factions at the start. Um, so he's almost kind of like the second guy. And, and Eddie Redmayne as Tom Hayden also has a second guy, but his second guy is very clearly the second guy. Yeah. Um, the character of Rennie Davis is the second guy. But Jared Rubin is like, he gets his own like subplot um, about... Um, like there's a thing with the undercover cop that he kind of like has a thing for. And it just kind of was a weird thing. It's a, like, you could probably cut down a lot of that or actually flesh it out and add more to it. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you brought him up because I absolutely hated that performance. Uh, I thought he was doing a Tommy Chong impression and I was like, there has to be a justification for this. Like this guy must've really sounded like that. I have watched five different YouTube videos of Jerry Rubin today, he did not speak that way. It was not anywhere near that <laughs> level. And that just is, that just smacks of laziness to me of like, that's a director needing to pull an actor back. That's an actor needing to, I don't know. It's like, it's like he let the look inform the voice. And so then, I don't know, again, I come back to Tommy Chong. I felt like I was watching that 70s show anytime he was on. Yeah, he's, um, he's really almost more hippie than Sasha Baron Cohen yeah. is. And that's hard act to, to out hippie, I think. And I, I like what you mentioned about comparing him and Rennie Davis, because I found I found myself very protective of Rennie. There's a, there's a moment when he's trying to negotiate with some cops and he gets, uh, he gets clubbed really brutally. And I instantly was so angry. And I think it's because of how well that actor was doing the entire time. Yeah, he is he is yeah. the heart of the the seven, like, and they yeah, established he the actors does a good job of establishing that the writing is kind to him in that regard, um, and I think they do a good job of giving him just the amount of you know time to develop that, and then also realize like he's okay, he's here, but he's not going to be one of the main players of the movie. Yeah, it is. It is um, very clear that he is going to be a secondary character. You're right, and I we should say his name. I feel bad that we haven't. His name is Alex Sharp. Alex Sharp, wherever you are, you did a great job. Um, two thumbs way way up. And yeah, agreed. With uh, with that, let's let's talk about the performances from a from a zoom out. Which. So I mentioned in the uh, episode, the most recent episode about The Shining, that Netflix is running 
every single one of these guys as supporting actor, and they're doing a campaign for all of them. I mean, I'm sure they're not for Alex Sharp, but uh, for Mark Rylance, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, um, Franklin Jella, Jeremy Strong, Sasha Baron Cohen, Eddie Redmayne, they're running them all in supporting actor, Michael Keaton. Um, who do you think has a chance of actually getting in? And who would you throw a nomination to um, not worrying about the fact that, you know, there can only be five nominees in total. Like, like who, who do you think did an Oscar worthy job? Who do you think will actually get singled out come awards season? Uh, I mean, I think this isn't that part of a question just based. <laughs> I feel like you're probably going to agree. I think I would give it to Rylance, but it's going to go to Cohen. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that there's a very good chance Sasha Baron Cohen wins an Oscar for this, especially considering that Borat 2 just came out as well, and that Giuliani stuff happened in it, and that makes it so much buzzier. And everybody loves to see him get up on a stage and do something insane. Like, even the Oscars can pretend they're above it, but no one is above it. Yeah, he's definitely hot right now. Yeah, um, and, and he is really good in it. Like, I really thought that he... At first, I was ready to turn my nose up at it and be like, oh, he's just kind of being a weird hippie. But there's that moment when it, uh, and this was interesting too, it was a moment of someone else watching an interview with the character of Abby Hoffman on TV. And someone asks him, um, you know, what would someone have to, what would you, no, is what would be the cost for you to give up the revolution? And he says, my life. And the way that he hesitated it should have not worked at all, but he really, I think, embodied the heck out of this part, and the problems that are in this part are completely with the script and yeah. uh, are over-camping him, because I think that acting-wise, like, he did an incredible job. Yeah, I agree. When he's given the the opportunity to stick a landing, he sticks it in this yeah. movie. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes the the script or the direction kind of tells him, hey, don't don't land. We're just going to do something else. And that that was my only gripe with, with him in this movie, I think. Yeah, there's that really like annoying part where he and Jerry Rubin are wearing judges robes just to be edgy. And then they take them off and they're wearing policemen's uniforms just to be edgy. And it's like that undid so much of the great work that he does as a performer in this. It, I don't know. Um, but as far as who I would give, uh, who I would nominate for Elise, I think there's a good chance Mark Rylance gets in there. Um, and I thought, like I said, that John Carroll Lynch as uh, Denninger was just really, really good. Like that's what a real character actor does where they are given so little and they do so much. I know I already said exactly that, but like, I just can't think of a better example of this in the past year. Um, and John Carroll Lynch is a guy that does that a lot, I feel yep. like. Because he's immediately recognizable, but then sometimes it's hard to be like, oh, but from where? Like, what movie did I see him in? And that's just because he he fits in the roles. You know, he's not a leading man, but like he fits in the roles he's given really well. Yeah, I. Uh, it's remarkable. Like, I we talked about him and his performance in Zodiac on the podcast a few weeks ago and how creepy and effective and funny he is. And then he's also in my favorite movie of all time, Fargo. Mm -hmm as just the put upon husband of Francis McDormand, who all he does for some reason is paint ducks. And I just see that guy, but I also see Zodiac. And now I'm also gonna see uh, David Denninger. Like he's just a great actor doing a great job. 
I I thought Frank Langella did a good job, and I think there's a good chance he gets nominated for his second Oscar for this. Um, I wouldn't pick him just because I thought that character had so many. It was just dialed up to 11, and it was a bit too much for me. Yeah, it just kind of tonally was a little inconsistent with the rest of the stuff. Yeah. It, but then again, the rest of the stuff also would bounce up and down a bit. Yeah, everything had a rough edge in this movie at one point or another, except yeah. for Michael Keaton, who was amazing. You know, uh, we're talking about John Carroll Lynch. He was in The Founder um, with Michael Keaton. Did you see that movie? The one no, I never McDonald's? have. I would, I would like to watch it. But... Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. I, it just, but he's also, um, I think John Carroll Lynch plays one of the like one of the McDonald's. Um, I think they were brothers that Michael Keaton's character comes in and screws over. Um, but I thought that was funny. That's the last movie I remember them both being in the room in together. Yeah, that's I'm I'm sure they've done other stuff together too. I'm sure somehow he was in Batman or Batman Returns or something. Yeah, he's in the background somewhere, I'm sure. Yeah, he's one of Penguin's clowns. Um oh man. Yeah, I it it's a movie worth watching. It's very prescient. It's very relevant to uh to things that we're talking about and feeling and experiencing today. Uh, check out the trial of the Chicago seven. It is worth your time. Um, is there anything else about it that you think we haven't covered? No, I think we, we covered all the, the big thoughts that I had about it. And yeah, I agree. I think it, I think it is a good movie. I think it's definitely worth watching, but yeah, just know it's gonna, it's gonna be a little bit of a bumpy road. Sometimes it's got some, yeah. as you said, rough edges that are every now and then. This would be the perfect, um, take your family to go see, uh, over Thanksgiving break kind of thing because it's political so it's interesting for young people but it's about the 60s so old so boomers can be like oh uh, it's about the 60s and we were the best so yeah um, yeah it's a shame that that venue isn't available to us uh, all right next week uh, my guests and I are going to be talking about Spirited Away which is a very fun appropriate November movie to me um, and also our first foray into animation. So very excited about that. And thank you guys for listening to Have You Seen. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Lee underscore H underscore Henry. You can find the podcast on Instagram at Have You Seen Podcast. Thanks very much.